to Peace in Their Time, Episode 20, Old Labor. Last week, we left off with the transfer of political power from the last of the truly old guard leadership, and politically the UK starts being led by men who will make their historical mark solely in the interwar period. Stanley Baldwin, the new conservative leader, was a pleasant man on a personal level, and even as a soulless Tory, he gave the impression of a normal guy who just happened to become an MP, and now suddenly and surprisingly was Prime Minister. He was sociable and easy to have a conversation with, regardless of politics. He was also a terribly indecisive and lazy man as well. It was impossible to force him to make a decision, and he became panicked when under pressure. If he detected a problem, he would usually try and ignore it until it went away. If it didn't go away, then he would instead. He drove his cabinet insane at just how little he paid attention to, well, anything. But again, he was easy to get along with, and if surrounded by the right people to do the heavy lifting, could be a serviceable figurehead. The problem was that many of the most prominent Tories had marginalized themselves the year previously during the coalition breakdown. Baldwin, though, had an idea to bring everybody back together. He was going to start throwing up tariffs, which is like conservative catnip. But also, was not exactly the sweeping reform much of the nation was probably hoping for in those days. Just to reiterate, the conservatives of yesteryear are slightly different than modern ones. At least up until the past few years of our modern day, that is. Back then, the distinguishing economic platform that conservatives were universally in favor of was protective tariffs. Just as a basic little economics lesson, tariffs are a tax imposed on foreign goods entering the country. Let's say you import some French wine. You'll have to buy the wine and pay the tariff to bring it in. In industrialized societies with mass production and consumption, this can add up and become unappealing real fast. If a particular industry at home is under threat, the tariff could discourage foreign competition and protect its place in the domestic market. And as brought up in previous episodes, there are large segments of British industry under pressure. So, Baldwin started advocating for increased tariffs across the board in the autumn of 1923. Now, I swear this is going somewhere. I'm not just talking about economic proposals because I think it's fun. For one, if you feel a little uninspired by tariffs being the big government initiative by the new PM, a lot of the British people thought so too. For another, it did actually serve its purpose to bring the conservative leadership from the defunct coalition back to the fold, and did reunify the party. Now, the next big step was to legitimize Baldwin's place as prime minister and hold another election. The Tories at the time were spoiling for an electoral fight, just a year after the last one. They got it in 1923 and came out with the most seats again. But not a majority of them, though. Labor increased its share yet again, tripling its seats since the disastrous 1918 election. The two factions of liberals also came together and enjoyed a modest resurgence. The election had basically been on tariffs, which the Tories had expended little to no effort actually pitching their case for them. Meanwhile, Labour and the Liberals went all in on opposition and made sizable gains. Asquith, currently leading the Liberals, decided to take the plunge and agree to be junior members in a coalition with Labour. And so, under the leadership of Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Party accepted. On January 22, 1924, he became the fourth British Prime Minister in just two years. Ramsay MacDonald will be the other major political leader in British politics going well into the 1930s, this time coming from the left. 
MacDonald himself was not particularly zealous in ideology, and in fact he preferred his rank-and-file party members to class themselves up while in office, so as to meet the expectations of the largely upper- and middle-class membership of the other two dominant political parties. The higher classes were not expected to lower themselves, of course. Uh, this almost instinctual desire to conform is going to prove to be MacDonald's primary problem throughout his time in the highest echelons of British politics. So far, he has been, and will continue to be, relentlessly attacked as a leftist radical by the establishment. At the same time, he himself will be working tirelessly to moderate his party's stances so as to be more presentable, alienating his own base of support. He was basically third-wayism 70 years early. The base of the Labour Party was a genuinely workers' movement in these days, and disaffected workers were rallying to Labour's red banner. MacDonald, though, believed that taking the movement from out of the cold meant it would have to go legit, or sell out, however you want to look at it. MacDonald wanted reform for workers' rights, increased pay, more social programs, but stopped short of dismantling the owner and manager classes that controlled the industries that were making the workers' lives living hell. It was a conundrum he was never to solve. That's for the future, though. For now, MacDonald could content himself with getting into Whitehall as an ostensibly socialist prime minister. It would prove to be an unhappy stay. The marriage with the liberals was a disaster. The unity that party had enjoyed during the election fell apart again when the cold water of having to bunk up with labor hit them. This was actually the time when the liberals really fell apart as a viable party. Some of them reluctantly supported their partners, others ignored the coalition, and went against Labour's proposals. Speaking of which, MacDonald had about as much success governing as Baldwin had before him, with his biggest success being a simple housing subsidy. Labour was showing every sign that it was very much in power for the first time, with all the inexperience that would entail. The Tories, for their part, ate it up. You'd think an electoral defeat would take the wind out of their sails, but like most conservatives, they thrived in the opposition. They bridged their differences and plotted to undermine the wildly unstable government at every turn. There was much more movement when it came to foreign affairs, though. Uh, by a happy coincidence, a center-left government under Edouard Herriot had come to power in France, and it finally seemed like there was a Frenchman willing to wind down the whole Rhineland situation. MacDonald got to play the intermediary to get the Germans and French talking, which eventually resulted in the crisis winding down as described in the French episodes. The other big event, dominating most of 1924, was the effort by MacDonald to recognize the Soviet Union. This was a much more dicey proposition, as nobody among the liberals or conservatives wanted anything like that. Then there was the matter of delicately asking the Soviets to reimburse French citizens for lost investments from before the revolution, which the Soviets dragged their feet over for most of the year. The drawn-out nature of the negotiations created an endless opportunity for the Labour Party's opponents to snipe from the sidelines. And very quickly, this modest bit of foreign policy would turn around and spill over into domestic politics. On the 25th of July, an article by one J.R. Campbell, on behalf of the Communist paper Workers Weekly, was directed specifically to the soldiers of the country, beseeching them to ignore any future orders to march off to war and instead turn their guns upon the ruling classes of the UK. Naturally, those ruling classes took exception to this line of thought and accused Campbell of inciting a mutiny under a law dating back to 1797. 
Any attempt at actually producing a trial would have been a farce, of course, and over the next few weeks, the idea was tabled. In that time, though, every conservative and liberal hopped on the bandwagon to paint labor as a party of un-British radicalism. This led Asquith on behalf of the liberals to put forward a vote of no confidence in the same government he was in coalition with. He probably assumed that the nation was sick of general elections and that his opposite numbers in the other parties would have to come crawling over to him to make a deal. Either the Tories would offer something, or Labour would bind themselves ever closer to the liberal point of view. Turns out, though, neither party wanted to do that, and the third general election in two years was on. Usually, I would just feed you the election results and move on, as campaigns are never quite as interesting in retrospect as they are at the time. Now, This time around, though, it had a special bombshell towards the tail end of the campaign. The Daily Mail, a Tory rag even in those days, published the Zinoviev letter, just a scant four days before the voting was set to open. Now, you'll be forgiven for not knowing who Grigory Zinoviev was, and we'll certainly be getting to him during the Soviet episodes. Long story short, he was the head of the Comintern, the international organization of communists tasked with coordinating Marxist efforts across the globe, specifically efforts to undermine existing governments in order to pave the way for Leninist ones. Daily Mail claimed to have received a leaked letter from Zinoviev directed at MacDonald. It stated bluntly that if the treaties being floated in the UK to recognize the Soviet Union were to pass, then the way would be cleared for the proletariat of both nations to join in revolutionary action. Society, as the Britons knew it, would be torn down, and Leninism would be spread not just to the British Isles, but to the global empire as well. To that effect, there would also need to be propaganda efforts undermining the British military in order to neutralize it as a tool for the bourgeois to defend itself from the impending class war. Pretty much every upper and middle class nightmare was laid out in the letter, which turned out to be the main argument against its, against its authenticity. It conjured up images of Asiatic communists washing ashore onto the UK, replacing good old Anglo values with deeply foreign ones. The empire would be dismembered according to the letter and Arabs, Indians, and Irish would be totally free to go their own ways as equals. It was really panicky stuff, and, of course, anybody with a problem towards labor absolutely went bonkers over it. Funny story, though, nobody could confirm where the letter had actually come from. Of course, MacDonald denied ever being a party to it. Zinoviev himself denied it to the international press once he got wind of what was going on. The Russians astutely pointed out that the titles of the letter signatories were incorrect. The Tories already assumed MacDonald was a diehard communist, and so the conservative wing of society believed in the letter wholeheartedly. The Daily Mail had not gotten the only copy. The Conservative Party had one of their own, and the UK's Foreign Office had also gotten their hands on one as well, leading to accusations that they were the ones responsible for leaking it to the Daily Mail in the first place in order to wreck MacDonald and scuttle a potential treaty with the Soviets. Both parties denied this, and the rumor swirled to its origins. Some said that the original letter had been sent from the USSR to the British Communist Party, and copies made there eventually fell into the outside hands. Another theory was that the Secret Service transcribed copies of the intercepted letter in Rija. The actual source of the letter didn't really matter, though. More than enough of the public went for it, and Labour's fate was pretty well sealed. For the election, they were well on track to lose anyway. After the Campbell case and the Zinoviev letter, they were dead in the water. MacDonald didn't help matters by not addressing the whole letter business until a couple days after its release, only two days out from the election. 
so that didn't help either. Plus, it's been conjectured he was truly tired of eating it from both his coalition partners, the liberals, and the left wing of his own party, and didn't even care to win. If that were the case, he certainly got his wish. Labor lost the October 29, 1924 election, and the conservatives won big. But there was a silver lining for Labor. Though they may have lost a chunk of seats, they also slightly increased their overall share of the vote, so the base was still there. The big conservative gains came from the Liberal Party almost totally disintegrating. Turns out siding with socialists, then painting those very same partners you tied yourself to as Leninist agents, might not have been the best long-term electoral strategy. So the Liberal support swung hard for the Tories, banishing them to the wilderness they never really emerged from. Now, Stanley Baldwin was again the Prime Minister, after the fifth leadership change since the end of the war. Good news for those of you tired of the musical chair's nature of the past few years, he was destined to stick around for a while, providing a continuity of government not seen since the wartime coalition. I had mentioned before that Baldwin had secured the reunion of the various Tory factions back into a cohesive whole, but he also gained a pickup from the Liberal Party that was to have farther-reaching implications. When assembling his cabinet, Baldwin selected Winston Churchill as his Chancellor of the Exchequer. Churchill, for the Conservatives, was something of a prodigal son. He had started his career in the party, but had spent the past 20 years a liberal. The steady disintegration of the Liberal Party had diminished his prospects for a further political career, so he made the switch, this time permanently. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, though, was seen by many, including himself, as something of an odd choice of cabinet posts. The purpose of the position was, and is, to manage the finances of the nation and develop the economy. This was not Churchill's forte, as he was much more an ideas guy rather than a charts and graphs guy. You could make the observation that the Chancellor is considered the number two position next to the PM himself, and that it was a pretty clear stepping stone to eventually becoming Prime Minister one day. Maybe Baldwin was grooming Winston to the highest of offices, seeing a potential that others might have missed in what was otherwise a slightly underperforming career. The argument against that, of course, was that Churchill's time as Chancellor would not directly lead him to getting that spot, which would only come sometime later under far different circumstances. Instead, his time as the number two man in government proved to be a difficult half-decade for himself, with some of the toughest economic unrest yet hitting the country as he is tasked with making a conservative fantasy a reality. You see, Baldwin had decided the time was right to ensure that sound is a pound would continue to be a cliché for generations to come. And to put a point on the strength of the British currency, he decided that the gold standard would be re-implemented. So, oh boy, here we go. The gold standard. The system of ensuring that your currency can always be backed by gold. Ensuring that your seeming fiat currency is actually so much more. But why would Stanley Baldwin want to do that? And why now? And why is it important? Well, let's take a look at where the British economy is, now six years removed from the Great War. It might not be a terribly inspiring picture. We've already seen the labor tensions in the aftermath of the war, and those weren't just temporary pains. They were largely there to stay. Before the war, Britain had been the world's bank. Now they were under pressure from Wall Street the same as anybody else. As discussed, the coal industry was shrinking in the face of foreign output. The nation's shipbuilding industry faced a shortfall in orders after peacetime footing returned. And most embarrassingly, their spot as the top trade nation 
was fatally undermined. In business, four years is a long time, and in the interim of war, other nations had slipped into their niches. The U.S. edged into the Latin American markets, while the Japanese of all nations set up shop in India and other places inside the empire. Ironic, given that both nations had been key allies of the U.K. But that was the reality, and the U.K. had to adapt to it. Unfortunately, the story of Britain and much of the rest of the world was that instead of adapting, the dominant conservative thought was to try and get back as much of the old world as they possibly could, ergo the gold standard. The UK was actually on the standard up to World War I. Every pound in circulation was backed by gold and could at least be theoretically redeemed by it. These were times when paper currency on its own was still seen as unreliable in terms of holding value. It had to be backed up by something rarer and more precious. The reality that the government would have to go all in on deficit spending to fund the war effort was accepted, though, and it was abandoned during World War I, though there was the expectation that the nation would return to the standard once the war had been won. The 1920-21 recession, though, put those plans on the back burner, and the bigger issues cropping up in those first five years of peace prevented the siren call of gold to be properly heard. With the conservative landslide of late 1924, though, the way it was clear to return gold to its former preeminence. There was kind of a snag about the whole enterprise, though, and that was to make sure there were a few enough pounds in circulation that the monetary supply could be backed up by bullion. This entailed a rather strong currency when compared to other units of value, like the dollar or the franc. Admittedly, this was kind of the whole point. The pound would be seen as more valuable than currencies of other nations, and it could be relied upon to be more stable, heightening its appeal in global finance. Plus, there is the age-old psychological component, where a powerful currency is perceived as belonging to correspondingly powerful countries. Valuable money good, cheap money bad. Nations like France and Italy suffered from the sting of inflation, with the savings of large segments of the population losing much of their value. If you have 50 francs, and the cost of a meal rises from 15 francs to 25 francs, well, you still only have the 50 francs to spend on that meal. The price rose from 30 to 50% of your pocket cash is really too bad. The British leadership really didn't want that sort of thing to happen to good and upstanding Britons. That experience was for Europeans. Anyway, there's always a catch when it comes to economics, and while it's really bad if your currency loses too much value, bad stuff also starts to happen if it gains too much as well. The most immediate negative side effect is that it becomes wildly difficult to export goods. When a company produces something, whether it's a resource like coal and iron, or a completely manufactured good like a car, it has to be bought with money. Goods and commodities hailing from the UK would have to be bought with pounds. The problem arises in that, say, a German company doing the buying would have to convert their marks into pounds, and given how valuable the pound became in this time, that becomes an expensive proposition for the German company. And given how I was just describing the older British industries being in decline, this hindrance to exports really, really doesn't help at all. There is also the effect that buying goods abroad and importing them into the UK becomes more attractive as well. Just as it takes more foreign currency to convert into pounds, so too does converting pounds net you a big pile of foreign money. So when a British buyer converts their pounds into dollars, all of a sudden, they'll have a lot more dollars to play with when buying stuff on the American market. This is good for prospective consumers of foreign goods, but absolutely terrible for domestic producers who now have to deal simultaneously with foreign competition and being hobbled when trying to sell their own goods abroad. 
there was the bright light as the allure of the pound as a tool of financing was restored in the world, though that self-confidence boost led to an overextension in lending that would blow up in spectacular fashion in the 1929 crash. But we'll definitely get to that later. Right now, though, let's focus on the state of British industry during these years. As I've been harping on, the heavy industries have been on the, on the decline. This is due not just to foreign competition or a lack of demand, but also because of the aging character of the British industry. The Great War had broken out in a period where British heavy industries like steel production or coal mining had reached a point where they were in need of modernization. Of course, the war delayed this, and now with the business environment in a much shakier spot, it was hard to sell lenders on modernizing industries in decline. Which, of course, created a negative feedback loop where a declining business can't secure the funds to modernize, which means it keeps going into decline, making it an even less desirable opportunity for lenders. And while this is going on with old industries, there were also more newfangled operations starting up. The UK didn't quite measure up to the mind-bogglingly gigantic production output of the US, but they certainly did get into the consumer goods game themselves. Cars, electronics, chemicals, rayon for textiles, and specialized equipment were all examples of emerging industries in the UK during this era. There are some problems with them, though, because this entire period is pretty much just a series of intractable problems. The first is that while these more advanced sectors of the economy are definitely growing and finding a consumer market, they simply didn't employ the same number of people as the old major industries. Most folks will still be employed in the traditional sectors, and the job losses there as the years tick by will dwarf whatever growth is experienced by the new businesses. There is also the problem in that these new industries start cropping up away from the centers of the old ones. So while some areas of the UK will see a positive uptick in economic activity, the areas in decline won't have any alternatives to shift their unemployed onto. And moving really isn't an option for those laid off from the mines or the docks. The average worker won't have enough savings to raise stakes and move across the country. And there weren't a lot of networks to, to communicate to distant workers what jobs were around elsewhere. And finally, even if your average Joe worker makes it to some place that is offering a job in a newer industry, there's a solid chance he wouldn't be qualified for it. A defining feature of these new jobs is that they did typically, typically require a higher level of technical proficiency than the average miner possessed. For, for the audience in the UK, the situation was remarkably similar to that of our own coal miners in, say, Appalachia. Folks got stuck in declining areas, and the only new jobs opening up were far away and required an education that just might not have been there. There was even resistance among the UK miners to being forced to adapt to newer kinds of jobs, instead preferring to fight to maintain the mining existence that had been a given in their communities for generations up to that point which again is very similar to the experience of mining communities in the U.S. When your entire identity in life is a certain way of living, it's hugely difficult to move on from. And the alternative prospects offered up elsewhere might be out of one's reach. So yeah, that's kind of the story of Britain's internal industries in the 20s. Decline in the mass employment industries, and a notable but slower rise in the more specialized industries taking advantage of the day's scientific advancements. It created an environment where the established higher classes and those who could get stable work in the newer industries could eke out a decently comfortable living with access to a wider array of consumer goods. But for those stuck in the doldrums, the situation was far different. Job numbers would shrink, putting many on the public rolls. 
while those who kept their jobs would face pressures to see their wages slashed. The deflation surrounding the return to the gold standard made the downward trends in the older industries even worse as prospective buyers went elsewhere. All this bad news steadily built up, and on next week's episode, we'll blow up into the National General Strike, the biggest labor strike to date. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.